0: Pro Se, Law Through 60's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. This week, we're going back to my favorite topic, the Supreme Court. The court has two big privacy cases on its docket, so we're bringing on a special guest, Andy Pincus, a partner at Mayor Brown, who has a lot of experience arguing before the court. Andy will help us break down the cases and outline what implications the rulings could have. And stick around to the end of the show when we talk about Johnny Depp's latest legal battle, a suit he's filed against his own lawyers. As always, I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson.
1: Hey guys.
0: So, Bill, you seem tired, and I think it's because I sent you far away to yeah, you cover don't something good. in court. Yeah, you don't
2: look good. You didn't I, used to look like this. <laughs> oh, wow, guys, this hurts. Uh, well, I have spent 16 hours on an Amtrak train. Yeah, that'll uh, do. Over it. the last two days, yeah. um, I was in Richmond, Virginia. Yeah. Uh, the beautiful home of the Fourth <laughs> Circuit. Yeah. Uh, I was down there. There were these big arguments in a copyright case dealing with online piracy, sort of a first-of-its-kind case, so um, I was down there covering it. Our D.C. folks were were not available for it, so I hopped on a train and I, and I went on down. It was That's fun the time. kind of
0: intrepid reporter you are. Yeah, it was good. So can you tell us what the case is all about?
2: Yeah, it's a case filed by a music publisher called BMG against Cox Communications, which is a broadband provider. And... It's essentially trying to hold Cox itself liable for copyright infringement for illegal downloading that went on on its network by its subscribers, saying that they ignored evidence of of copyright infringement, and that puts them on the hook as, like, contributory
1: copyright infringement. Now, there's been litigation about internet piracy mm-hmm. in the past, and there's no no shortage of it, in fact, but I know that... The context here and the way they're examining this question is is pretty novel. So talk about the stakes a little
2: yeah, bit. Yeah, it's a big deal. I know just now that sounds a little dry the way I led into it, but, you know, we've heard for years record labels and uh, movie studios complaining about online piracy, and ultimately they haven't really found a way to find this big institutional right. thing to sue. They you remember a couple years ago when they did the whole thing with suing individual college kids and that was obviously a PR nightmare and didn't really do much and they file notices and takedowns all the time about stuff that gets posted online but it goes right back up they call it a game of whack-a-mole so this case is aiming to hold an ISP liable for illegal downloading so it's a big issue whether or not they can actually do that Um, for the most part ISPs like Cox are immunized against this kind of thing by the DMCA, the Digital Millennium Copyright
1: Act. Yeah, I was going to ask sort of what where the legal lines are as we know them.
2: Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So the argument here from BMG is that Cox lost the protection of that safe harbor that the DMCA provides them because they didn't terminate people who were called repeat infringers. Mm -hmm. People who, you know, 25 notices were sent to them saying that this person, this IP address downloaded stuff illegally. We saw them doing it, yada, yada, yada. The DMCA requires in this sort of vague language that an ISP have a policy in place to get rid of people like that, to terminate your internet access. There's no definitions in the law and this has sort of been lightly explored in courts. BMG argued Whatever the definition is, you didn't meet it for, yeah. for right. finding for having one of these policies, and you don't get this sort of all-powerful immunity anymore against our lawsuit. Strangely enough, a judge sided with them on this, and a month later, a jury returned a $25 million verdict against Cox for secondary copyright infringement. So it was a big deal, and... It's a particularly big deal because, in terms of what it will mean if it's upheld at the Fourth Circuit,
0: so will it mean that they can basically terminate a bunch of customer service?
2: Well, it won't. It'll mean it'll mean or they'll have it'll to. It'll mean that they'll have to, right? Mm-hmm. That's the or that they'll be or that we don't know exactly what they have to do. There will
1: be some kind of guidance that will be when
2: scared can... into doing it, mm-hmm. and that's the mm-hmm. sort of. Um, so there's been a lot of outside interests. The record, the RIAA, the MPAA, um, sort of the big media yeah. outside folks, have all filed. Amicus briefs saying, you know, this is the thing that we need. This is what we need to to fight piracy. On the other end, cable companies and consumer rights groups have said this is going to result in us censoring People and removing people's internet access, and, and I'm all sure cable
0: companies and these broadband providers—they have no interest in even just dealing. They just don't want to get into this. Exactly, they, they say the decision is going to be hard for them, mm-hmm. and they, they say we out.
2: are a telephone line. Yeah, we, right. If you called somebody on the telephone <laughs> and committed a crime, yeah. y- you don't hold the telephone line liable. Right. That's their yeah. stance here.
0: So, how did it go you
2: know, so in were, the oral argument? Yeah, you were in the house. What it, was that? Uh, what so, was that like? it was kind of up and down. And I said this to Amber after I got out of the hearing that. You know, it, they didn't talk about as much as I would have loved some of these big picture issues, some of the mm-hmm. reasons why myself and a lot of other copyright folks are watching the case. But it wasn't boring. It was I've covered a lot of oral arguments at appellate courts. This was one of the more heated, uh, or one of the more. I don't want to say that the judges were being aggressive because that sounds pejorative, but they were very, very uh, active. They. Interrupted immediately they demanded answers on things that they Mm -hmm. had asked they at one point the attorney for Cox and um, One of the judges they were sort of talking over each other and the judge said when a federal judge is speaking you be quiet (laughs) and stuff like that and nice. um, There was this other thing with the and it was equal opportunity here because they did the same stuff to BMG's attorney at, at one point, so there's this sort of side issue where the notices that BMG was sending to Cox, Cox claims was extortionate and was demanding these little settlements from their mm-hmm, subscribers. Mm-hmm. So at one point, the judge said, it, "Like, let's not dance around this. We know that you were demanding money from subscribers. Let's just like <laughs> this case is about money. Don't act like it's not." And so, <laughs> wow. it, it was it was, was just fun
0: to be there for. I bet
2: it was fun. Um, it looked like everybody was a little shell shocked afterwards, um, <laughs> but it was uh, it was interesting. And and like I said at the beginning. We didn't get to as many of the big picture things as yeah. I would have liked. And it was interesting that judges at one point said, you know, I really thought you would have brought up this DMCA thing a little earlier. <laughs> Go <laughs> figure. Seemed,
0: seemed like a good argument. What's going on Exactly. Here? Yeah. So
2: um, I wish they had gotten to a little bit more of this big stakesy stuff, but it was a very interesting hearing to be there for.
0: So now we'll just wait on a verdict there.
2: Yeah. Um, we're waiting. I mean, uh, oral arguments happened this week. So, um, you know, anytime in the next six months, we're hoping to see a big, big ruling out of the Fourth Circuit.
0: Great. Thanks for that, Bill. Yeah. So we just ended one with something we say on the pod a lot, which is like, oh, we'll follow that case and see what happens next. Alex, I think you're going to actually give us the answers to what's happened with some big ones we've talked about previously.
1: Yeah, well, the first thing I want to give an update on is last week I gave you a a four bet on Sports Equinox, uh, four bets across all the leagues. (laughs) And I kind of rattled it off off the top of my head. And uh, if you were scoring at home, I lost all four of those. (laughs) So if you want gambling advice, you can listen to a different podcast. Alex has a bunch of broken knuckles right now. You can't (laughs) see it from the... uh... Not this one. Uh, But yeah, uh, like Amber said, you know we're always kind of... Like putting pins in things and deciding when to update people. And just in this past week, there have been some developments on stuff that we've talked about, and I thought it'd be a good idea to catch everybody up. So the first thing, um, as you may recall, a few few weeks ago, we talked on the podcast about how the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau had issued this new rule that basically made it easier for customers to bring class actions against financial institutions, banks, credit card companies, things like that. And this was... Um, I can't imagine how that would be relevant these days. <laughs> well, yeah, <and> we've talked <laughs> about this in a lot of different contexts. And yeah. it was it made waves at the time because the CFPB is an independent agency not mm-hmm. beholden to the party of the of the administration. And it sort of set in motion this, you know, mad dash to repeal it uh, or, you know, modify it in some way. And uh, on Tuesday, late Tuesday this week, um, it was actually done away with uh, the Senate voted. Uh, it was a really close vote. Yeah, fifty-one to fifty uh, to uh, to repeal this rule. So um, what does that mean? What's the impact of them repealing the rule? Yeah. Um, so basically, this is yet another uh, ding in the class action landscape. We've mm-hmm. talked uh, many times about how it's it's becoming harder for customers to sort of band together in the, uh, you know, within the court system and like unite their claims against these mighty financial yeah. giants. I
0: feel like that's been one of our th- the themes of the Pro Se podcast yeah. <laughs> is talking about ways it's hard to bring class action. Right. Yeah.
1: So now, I mean, with this rule off the books, these things will mostly head back to arbitration, which was sort of the, the state of play before. Um, our senior banking reporter, Evan Weinberger, wrote a story that said, you know, the CFPB is still going to, do what it can to conduct oversight of these arbitration agreements to make sure they're carried out in a fair way. But for now, the class action uh, route is uh, largely foreclosed. Yeah.
0: So. so what's the next one we want to talk about, Alex?
1: Yeah, Bill, I think it was you a couple of weeks ago, right? We yeah, talked about me. the J&J talcum powder case. There was a $417 million jury verdict against Johnson & Johnson in a case that was Brought by a woman who claimed that uh, Johnson and Johnson's baby powder had given her ovarian cancer. And this is the
0: one where we talked a lot about th- what expert evidence was being presented and how how they were weighing that. Yeah, in the sort trial. of a
1: science free trial. Yeah. 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 And the you know the the amount of the jury verdict again 417 million dollars made us and a lot of other people uh, raise their eyebrows because the scientific literature linking this product, the, ca- the talcum powder to cancer, is pretty specious. Mm-hmm. And that was discussed openly at trial. And as it turns out, well, we're not the only ones who thought that because <laughs> so did uh, a California state judge who struck down that reward in wow. its entirety last week. And he did so largely on the grounds that we have talked about here. He said there was, there is, uh, this is a quote, an ongoing debate in the scientific and medical community, uh, end quote, about the relationship between the powder and the disease. And the judge also called into question the validity of expert testimony, saying it was, you know, that uh, the plaintiff's expert witness had overlooked other factors that could have caused cancer. Things like genetics and exposure to other elements and things like that. And this
0: was a big deal because there's a lot of these talc-related cases out there. Yeah, this
1: was a real curveball because there's a lot of them in the queue. And it was like, well, what do you do when this kind of dubious verdict, uh, you know, comes down? And now, I mean, we know at least that there's, you know, when, when you're dealing with juries and juries get very emotional about people, you know, getting cancer using consumer products. But, you know the bench can serve as a backstop to that. Um, one of the most interesting pieces that we put out uh, was from Daniel Siegel, and he was basically the the thesis. There was that there's a long road to hoe here, and these these sure. product liability cases take a long time to unspool. Mm-hmm. Um, It's also still up for appeal Uh, that there is the door open to appeal this uh, this decision. But uh, Daniel had a good quote from from a lawyer he spoke with who was like, you know, now when people bring, you know, like mesothelioma cases uh, with regard to exposure to asbestos, no one bats an eye at that. That's just like known. But at the beginning, when that litigation was starting to get rolling. we had decisions on the books that looked quite a lot like this. Like there just wasn't right. enough literature, and the science is always kind of evolving, and you know, gathering more data. Yeah. So that's sort of a wait and see on that front. But that's where we're at now. That was a, a quite a quite a hefty reward that is for now, uh, completely set aside. Hmm. And I
0: think we have one last thing we just wanted to touch down on really quickly because it was something we all predicted on the podcast. Yeah,
1: I wanted. I thought we should <laughs> check in with our favorite sort of foul-mouthed uh, forex traders. Uh, just two weeks ago this is the most recent one. People probably remember, we told you about uh, these two former HSBC executives who were on trial for scamming a client out of $8 million in fees in this like big foreign currency exchange scam. And the big highlight there was a series of recorded phone conversations between one of the defendants, Mark Johnson, uh, and his co-worker. And in the most sort of explosive one, Johnson told the guy, I think we got away with it.
0: I think we got away with it, but...
1: Well... He didn't get away with it. A jury in the Brooklyn Federal Court uh, found him guilty this week of uh, eight counts of wire fraud and one uh, conspiracy count. And so that's where we're at on that. Um, So
0: we maybe aren't great with sports predictions. No. We were really dead on with that. This is
1: pretty much a slam dunk. Uh, Just to square the circle on that, there's another defendant, uh, the other HSBC guy, Stuart Scott, who is still in the UK awaiting a ruling on whether or not he can come here to stand trial. There's some interesting international... Like interplay there, but that's where we're at on that. Um, and now, uh, in the future, when you hear us say uh, we'll have to keep track of that stuff, you know that we're uh, you, we're, we're actually we're, doing that. Yeah, yeah, we <laughs> goddamn mean it. We're holding <laughs> we're holding ourselves accountable here. So. All
0: right, great. Thanks for catching us up on everything else. Yeah, happy to. We talk a lot on this podcast about what the Supreme Court's weighing, and this term we have a couple of privacy cases that could be game changers. Today we're joined by Andy Pincus, a partner at Mayor Brown, who focuses his appellate practice on cases at the Supreme Court. Andy's argued 27 cases before the high court, scoring victories in big suits, including the landmark case of AT&T versus Concepcion. We're happy to have his expertise today as we break down two big privacy cases that the justices have agreed to hear. Welcome, Andy.
1: Great to be with you. Andy, thanks so much for joining us. Um, the first case that we want to talk with you about is actually one that we discussed last week on the pod, and I figured it might be helpful to just catch some listeners up if they didn't catch that episode. It's a case that involves Microsoft, and it centers around whether the government has the authority to obtain personal email data from overseas servers. And the Microsoft case you know, gives the Supreme Court an opportunity to clear up how far law enforcement can reach for data in this cloud-based world under the scope of a 1986 law. So not all that recent. That law is called the Stored Communications Act. Uh, Microsoft won in the Second Circuit, and it it, uh, successfully blocked the government uh, during a narcotics investigation from accessing email data that was stored uh, on a server in Ireland. And that's teed us up uh, for Supreme Court review here. So beyond just the parties involved, I'm sure you can tell us, you know, about some of the big picture stakes here. Why why does this case matter? The stakes are really huge uh,
3: for anyone who has uh, information stored in the cloud, and obviously that's businesses today. That's people who use uh, every kind of email provider that you can imagine. Uh, that's everybody who people who store their family photographs or their personal documents. Everything today is stored in the cloud. And so the question here is, uh, what is the ability of the U.S. government? And and by analogy, right. what does the U.S. think foreign governments can do?
0: So we have Microsoft as one of the people arguing in this case. What are they going to argue before the justices about the reach of the government here?
3: Well, as you know, this is really a fight about whether the government can order Microsoft to bring into the U.S. uh, information that's on a server in Ireland, and the government says, well, Microsoft, you're in the U.S. We can serve you with process, and we can force you to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, Microsoft is going to say, no, that's wrong. Your authority under this statute only reaches to the territorial limits of the United States, and it's going to say that for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, just to, it's often helpful in these technology cases to think of an analogy in the physical world. Mm-hmm. So, if there was a U.S. company that ha- owned a hotel in Paris and you were staying there and your luggage was in the hotel room, nobody would think that the U.S. government could serve process on that hotel company in the U.S. and say, oh, by the way, I- I'd like to go, could you go to this hotel room? box up the luggage, put it in a, in a package, and send it back to us in the U.S., people right. would say, no, that's obviously an extraterritorial application of U.S. law. So this is exactly the same thing. We're just in the world of technology. The government says it makes a huge difference because Microsoft can get the information, can re- both request and get the information seamlessly uh, from its computers in the U.S., but really that doesn't make much of a difference.
0: So why is the government making that argument? I, I assume they just think um, it's really going to stymie investigations if they can't get this kind of information.
3: Well, it's certainly easier for them, and you know, right. often law enforcement people like to do the easiest thing. Uh, we've all watched Law & Order enough to know that. Uh, <laughs> right. but, but it's not the only way. There are cybercrime treaties uh, that set up mm-hmm. very quick processes for... The Justice Department here to go to its counterparts in other countries and ask for local process in those countries that would allow uh, those local authorities to get the electronic data and then share it uh, with the U.S. That's the right way to do this. But it's harder.
2: So it seems like this is a, a complex question that, that sort of requires a, a nuanced answer, but, but that the court appears to be sort of set up to, to rule, you know, you can either do this or, or you can't do this. Um, you know, the court often looks for for sort of, you know, low impact uh, ways that they can tackle a, a legal problem. Is there sort of a middle ground here or some more uh, uh, delicate path that they can walk than these two sort of black and white options?
3: I don't think so, and I think the delicate path is really the one uh, that I was just talking about, which Mm -hmm. is we have general rules that U.S. law doesn't rule the world. The Supreme Court has said that in a variety of contexts. We like to respect other countries. Mm -hmm. And to deal with this very problem, we've set up both bilateral uh, mutual legal assistance treaties and this uh, cybercrime convention. So the logical thing is to say to the government, those are the tools you use, and there's an important reason why think of the precedent that that is set if the government can do this here why can't the russian government go to microsoft and say gee we're interested in these us reporters for law 360 we think they've got some interesting <laughs> sources we hear that their emails are stored on your server in america since you're happy to the us government is happy to force you to bring in information from ireland and they say they can do that with just us process we take the same position here's our russian warrant will you please immediately download for us all that information uh, in the emails of those Law 360 reporters? What's America going to say back?
0: Yeah, that really puts it in stark contrast there when right. we flip it around to a different country.
3: So and I think that's one of the challenges for America is, you know, we're used to sort of saying our legal principles apply everywhere, but what the Supreme Court has said is comedy, respecting other countries, requires us to think a little bit about how those principles play out uh, if As you say, the situation is reversed.
0: So I'd like to pivot a little bit and talk about our second case. We're going to stick with the the territory of law enforcement and big tech companies, though, for the second one. The case is Carpenter versus U.S., and it's about whether law enforcement needs a warrant to obtain cell phone location records. The lower court said a phone's cell site location information counts as routinely collected business records, and the government can gather that without a warrant. So what is Carpenter arguing in that case?
3: Well, the the argument in that case is Carpenter says just because this information is in the possession of a third party, my cell phone provider, as opposed to me, that doesn't eliminate the need for the government to use uh, the warrant process to get what is highly sensitive personal information.
0: And what about what the government's going to argue there? Is this another one similar to the, the first case we talked about, where the government just wants the easiest, most expansive thing that they well, can get? Well, the
3: government relies on, yes, the government relies on some older cases that basically say, in the context of check processing statements, records that, that a bank had, you know, back in the pre-technology era, information in the possession of third parties, uh, the so-called third-party doctrine even if it's private information, you've shared it with the third party, the third party has it, and if we can get it from them, it's an easy route, and that's preserved. And I think what's important to recognize here is what a difference technology makes. You know, in a a series of recent cases, most recently in the cell phone search case from a couple of years ago, the court said we have to look at the impact of technology and not sort of routinely Uh, without thinking, apply principles developed in the pre-technology era to the technology area. In that case, the court said, yes, there's a search incident to arrest doctrine that says you don't need a warrant or probable cause to search uh, the body of an arrestee uh, when they're arrested, and you can search things that are on his person or her person. That doctrine was developed uh, in the pre-technology era. So address books, things in people's pockets or pocketbooks there was a limited amount of information that could be gotten from that uh, doctrine but the court said It's a world of difference when in somebody's pocket is their cell phone, (laughs) and it has every bit of personal information they have. We're not going to mindlessly say the way the government wanted us to, oh, yeah, cell phone, cigarette case, address (laughs) book, it's all the same. You can download the whole cell phone. We're going to look at what is the degree of intrusion and and do the justifications work. And I think what the court is going to do here is say that third-party doctrine was developed in a context where relatively little personal information of individuals was in the hands of third parties but now just as we were saying in the microsoft case think of everything that's in the hands of third parties and so just routine by rote saying up oh, third party doctrine case closed
0: mm-hmm. basically
3: takes the degree of privacy protection you had in the pre-technology era, era and eliminates it
0: so it sounds like to me we're getting into What we have talked about a lot Mm -hmm. on the podcast and in our articles at Law 360, where the uh, precedents and the case law we've seen and even some of the statutes on the books just aren't keeping pace with modern life. Is that really what the court's addressing in both of these cases?
3: Well, I think the court is recognizing that, and I think actually in the context of the Fourth Amendment's protection of your person and information against the government, they've done a pretty good job in in a series of cases, the cell phone case I mentioned, the GPS tracking case uh, that the court decided called USGV Jones a few years earlier. They've done a pretty good job of saying we are going to look at Fourth Amendment principles in light of the real-world effects of technology because our goal here is to preserve the degree of protection against government intrusion uh, that existed when the framers founded, uh, wrote the Constitution. And that may require changing the rules a little bit to adopt to this new reality.
0: Yeah, and it's definitely different even than That 1986 law we talked about with the first case. I mean, nothing was in the cloud back then. And people weren't, for the second case, Carpenter, people weren't walking around with cell phones in their pockets.
1: Benjamin Franklin certainly didn't put poor Richard's Almanac on the cloud. That (laughs) that much we know.
0: Yeah, so. um,
3: Exactly. But I I think what you say is true. You know, Congress hasn't looked at these issues and revised them. So in the first case, we do have this 1986 statute that was adopted at a very different time. Uh, And we're sort of the government, by trying to invoke it in this context, is a little bit trying to, you know, put a round peg in a square hole.
0: Well, thank you for coming on to explain all of these cases to us. I think the legal listeners are going to be interested for the legal arguments, but everybody should pay attention yeah. to these too because they're going to impact everyone. Yeah. All right. Thanks Absolutely. A
3: lot. Thank you.
0: So, we like to end our show with something offbeat, and I want to talk about some legal news involving Johnny Depp.
1: Yeah, he's going to be giving some Johnny depositions pretty soon, <laughs> sounds like. Yeah, he sure We're off. is. We're off and running. Um,
0: so, if you have followed the life and times of Johnny Depp, you know he's had some rough. Things happen in yeah. the last few years. He's got a lawsuit going against his business managers right now. He went through a, a divorce that was all over the tabloids. There were even some allegations of some domestic abuse.
2: He also got into that thing with Australia where they were going to they were gonna execute his dog. He
0: did. I forgot yeah. about that yeah. one. Um, he's had money woes. Yeah. He yeah. also
1: made Mordecai, which was a it's just all disaster. All terrible yeah, things. It was, it was, it was, it was rough well, times.
0: the problems continue. Yeah. He's now suing his own lawyers. So...
1: Great, He's... a great tradition.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, and we also love to talk about that on the podcast. Yes. Anytime lawyers are being sued for the work they did. Yeah. yeah. Um. So his former lawyers, um were served a suit in California state court saying they breached their fiduciary duty by collecting improperly thirty million dollars in contingent fees. Ouch. Yeah. So big numbers here. Okay. Um. The firm is quite a mouthful. It's. Bloom, Hergott, Dimer, Rosenthal, (laughs) LaValente, Sheldman, Sheckman, and Goldman.
1: (laughs) We need to do a segment later on like very like like onerous law firm names that we always have to write in full on first reference. So they go go by the
0: Bloom firm. We're going to call them that. Bloom Um, firm. So if you're not in the circles of media and entertainment attorneys, they're uh, a boutique firm that does just that. So Mm -hmm. they're well known in those circles, but probably not outside of that. Um, What
1: exactly is alleged to have gone down here?
0: So, he's alleging a lot of things here. He says that Jacob Bloom, his attorney, engaged in years of misconduct through self-dealing and failure to disclose some conflicts of interest. And right. he's been a client in this firm for about 18 years, wow. so a long time. Um, and some of that kind of peak Johnny Depp career time there. Yeah. Um, he says they didn't disclose some dealings with his management company, his business managers.
1: Mm-hmm. Who he's but also in a separate legal fight with. Yeah, this is, you can see how this was fraught.
0: Absolutely. So he says that the firm was doing, the attorneys were doing stuff like collecting fees from this business group. They're, call, they're actually called the management group. Um, Great. without <laughs> They're saying they're collecting these fees without a contract. He said the attorneys didn't warn Johnny Depp that one of his houses was about to be foreclosed on and that he didn't get the heads up until the proceedings had already started. So there hmm. wasn't much he could do at that point. Um, unjust enrichment malpractice violations of a bunch of business codes he's it's a kitchen sink kind of suit here
1: now see if he was getting legal advice from the bloom firm which is jake the guy what was his name jacob, jacob bloom yep. he would have been a lot better hands if he would defer to his pirates of the caribbean co-star orlando bloom wow it seems mean, like they were seems like
0: he'd be more better solid. friends yeah. you know yeah. think
1: probably connecting wouldn't. the dots here yeah. on the pro Se podcast <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> <laughs> so um We said a second ago, this isn't the only suit that Johnny Depp has going. He hit that business group, the management group, with a $25 million suit in (laughs) January. So in that one, he says there were just a bunch of missteps by what his business managers were doing. He says that they collected $28 million in contingency fees, again, without a written agreement. um, Loaned $10 million to third parties without Johnny Depp knowing it. Uh, delayed some filings of income taxes, and so he was on the hook for penalties to the tune of about $6 million. He was
1: like, guys, I didn't bust my ass starring in Transcendence so you guys (laughs) could skim it off the top For these contingency fees.
0: Well, I think, to me, the best part of this, the suit against the business managers, was that the management group came back and said in a counter
2: suit... Well, that's the thing with any time you... Like, if you want to sue us, like, we've got some stuff that we want to dig into. He's (laughs) sure got some
0: stuff. Let me give you a little taste of what they've got. Yeah. He, uh, They say that Depp demanded an extreme lifestyle that cost him more than $2 million a month to maintain. That's pretty high, even for a celebrity, right? Like, that's pretty extreme. So... They said he just didn't listen to their warnings. He was running out of money, and he just wouldn't listen. Smoking cigars Here's, rolled
2: in, in rare bird feathers.
0: Kind of. Let yeah. me give you the list. $75 million to acquire and furnish 14 residences. $18 million on a yacht and more than 45 luxury cars. Seems
2: like a okay number of cars. Yeah. And then his
0: monthly expenses were also quite intriguing. $30,000 a month on wine. Hmm. Cool. $300,000 a month for 40 full-time employees.
2: I mean, I don't know how he you could get by without. People. Yeah, I mean. Look, I get it.
0: And then $150,000 a month for security guards to watch him and his family full time.
2: I like that. Th- so those were very, I mean, if you average out, like, he's paying $150,000 a month for the security guards and 300000 for... 40 full time
1: other employees. I don't know. Those are, they better be good. They're like SEAL Team Six is he, watching this house. <laughs> right? He's also got like $40,000 for private screenings of The Tourist. I don't know what this is. This, is, <laughs> this doesn't make any sense. No one cares about this movie, Johnny.
0: Anyway. Yeah. So I, I just wanted to flag this as Johnny Depp digging into even further legal woes here.
1: Well, yeah. we wish him well. Or, Perhaps not. I don't know. I don't really care. Depends on his next movie. Am
0: I gonna like his next movie? Yeah. That's that's what it all comes down to. Recent for me. history
1: says no, but we'll <laughs> but we'll see.
0: All right. Thanks for talking about this with me, guys. That'll wrap us up for today. Thanks for being with me, Bill.
2: See you again next week, guys. And Alex. See
1: ya.
0: there's always a whole group of people to thank for today's show, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Steven Trader. We'd also like to thank our special guest, Andy Pincus, and contributing reporters this week, Evan Weinberger, Pete Brush, Dave Simpson, and Alison Grandy. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you want to know more about anything we've discussed today, check out our website, law360.com podcast. And if you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks, and join us again next week.